Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Well, hopefully that's uh, the response of our hearts as we come to this text today. We have no claim of our own, no righteousness to boast about, but only the righteousness of Christ. We can only look to Him and say He's, he's everything. He's everything. The reason for this is described here in Romans chapter 2, because God is going to judge righteously without partiality according to our deeds, and that word deeds includes even the secrets of our heart, as Romans 2, 1 through 16 points out. So we have nothing to boast about. We have nothing to claim. We all stand guilty before a holy God. And so we can only look to Christ for hope and help in our unrighteousness. Now, you remember the passage we were in last week in Romans chapter 1, Uh, Paul was describing how just based on creation itself, mankind should be able to recognize that there's a a divine being, a creator that we're accountable to, and he should be worshipped, but we don't. We commit all sorts of acts of idolatry. We serve ourselves, and the list of those kinds of sins, there are actually a couple of lists in Romans chapter 1, but one of them concludes the chapter. You see it there in Romans 1, 29 and following. And as your eyes glance over all of those words, we're sort of appalled. Wow, how could all of this wickedness come from hearts that are idolatrous, worshiping ourselves rather than worshiping God? And it's almost as if the Apostle Paul knew that there would be this temptation to kind of point the finger at others and say, yeah, how could they do such things? Don't they know how holy God is and how righteous He is and He's above all things, created all things? How could they do such things like covetousness and envy and deceit? And How could they commit those kinds of acts? And Paul sort of answers the question by turning on the reader in verse 1 of chapter 2 and saying, therefore, you are inexcusable. Oh, man. Now, I don't actually think Paul is talking specifically to the reader. Of course, he's including the reader, but he's actually kind of made up uh, an imaginary individual, his opponent, so to speak, and he's going to go back and forth with him here. Who is he referring to? Well, verse 1 tells us, whoever you are who judge. So who is this imaginary character? Somebody who looks at the sins of others and judges them. That's who he's talking to here. So, yes, he's including the reader, he's including me, he's probably including you. And he's going to go on to describe how when we point the finger, when we judge others for their sins, we actually commit a double sin ourselves. We put ourselves in the place of judge, which is only for God alone, that's a sin, And we also ignore the fact that we're doing the same kinds of things that they're doing. Remember, Romans chapter 1, the root of all sin is idolatry, isn't it? And so, if I've sinned and they've sinned, we've both committed idolatry. Now, the the actual outward working of that sin might be different, might have done a slightly different thing, but the reality is I've also committed sin. And so, he comes down hard here on our propensity to judge one another and the sin that that reveals in our own hearts. The last thing we need to know about this section of verses 2, 1 through 16, is that we're still in what we could call the the bad news of the gospel. And in this section, the Apostle Paul is, is speaking about how things are before the gospel, meaning before a person trusts in Christ. This is, we could call it law versus grace, okay? He's still talking in terms of law here. In fact, you heard in our reading today how many times the word law came up in our reading. This is, you know, like, like we were living before we got saved, when our only hope was to try to keep the law perfectly for some sense of righteousness. 
And that's going to lead us to our need for the gospel, but we're still in that kind of pre-salvation condition here. And so we'll keep that in mind as we work through this. This is helping us to see our sin and our sinfulness and our need for the Lord. So as we consider this section of law, Paul's goal, I think, is for the believer to understand kind of this downward path of our depravity, that, that our eyes see more clearly how sinful we really are and that it pervades our hearts and even our hearts will be laid bare before the Lord. And that ought to humble us. It ought to also increase our awe of the gospel. There's an there's a image that I would love for you to have in your minds as we go through Romans 1, 2, and 3. Two things should be happening as we work through it. On the one hand, let's say you're standing here, so imagine a little stick figure in your mind right here, okay? That's you. Now, two things should be happening as we progress through these chapters. On the one hand, our view of God should be increasing, Right? He's, he's creator and he's Lord and he's holy and he's righteous and his judgment is just and all these things we'll be learning in these chapters. And so our understanding of God should be growing and increasing. At the same time, down here, we have our sin. And so from our perspective, our view of our sin should be, well, we could use the word growing, but actually it should be sinking. <laughs> we understand more clearly the depths of our sin. So downward, downward, downward. Now, here's the next question for you. What is it that spans the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness? What is it that allows a holy God to be in relationship with his creatures who are sinful? It's the gospel. It's Jesus, isn't it? God sent his son to die for our sins and rise again that by faith our sins can be forgiven and we can receive the righteousness of God so we can be restored to right fellowship with God. So it's the cross, the gospel, it's Jesus, whatever you want to, however you want to put it there, that's what spans the gap. So, so here's what Paul is doing. As our view of God increases, as our view of our sin uh, grows or sinks, however you want to put that, what gets larger in our view the gap and the gospel that spans that gap, right? The love of God, the size of the cost of Jesus Christ on the cross. So, so Paul is helping us to increase our awe of the gospel as he shows us both the righteousness of God and our sinfulness so that hopefully we all come away with a larger view of the gospel, the larger view of God's love and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. So that's the way we've put it for this uh, section of Scripture today. Increase your awe of the gospel by understanding that no one can escape the righteous judgment of God. He judges righteously. There's no impartiality. He, he will judge all of our deeds. He sees everything, even what's in our hearts. And no one can escape his righteous judgment. So two things are happening. Our awe of God is increasing, our sadness over our sin is increasing, and we're just more and more amazed by the gospel that has provided our salvation. Why is it that we can't escape God's righteousness? I think that's the question that, uh, that Paul is going to answer in our text today. Why is it that no one can escape his righteous judgment? Okay, so in three parts, we're going to answer that question. Why is it impossible for us to escape the righteous judgment of God? First of all, we're going to see that self-righteousness is a symptom of a hard, unrepentant heart. And you'll notice that the outline is wrong, so we'll get that adjusted for you. You'll just have to listen to me today. Sorry about that. Uh, number one, self-righteousness is a symptom of, of a hard, unrepentant heart. One more time, self-righteousness is a symptom of a hard, unrepentant heart. Why can't we escape the righteous judgment of God? Because even our efforts to make ourselves righteous, self-righteousness, actually just reveal that we have a hard, unrepentant heart worthy of God's wrath. That's why in verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul comes down hard on those who judge others. Because judging others is a form of self-righteousness. It's a way that we make ourselves feel better about ourselves. You ever thought about that way before? Why do we point the finger at others? Why do we blame others? Why do we point out their sin when I've really done things very similar myself? 
Because when we put others down, when we blame shift, we make ourselves feel more righteous. Well, I didn't do that. Can you believe they did that? How could they? What kind of a person are they to do something like that? Well, I would never do something like that. What are we doing? On a human level, we're trying to push them down, and by pushing them down, trying to raise our own righteousness here. That's called self-righteousness. And it's a symptom of a hard, unrepentant heart. That's why Paul turns the, the, the attention here now to the one who judges others. And he says there in verse 1 of chapter 2, For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. This is a, sort of the, the biblical description of what we often have pointed out, right? When you point the finger at others, you've got three fingers pointing back at you, Right? That's not what Paul says here, but that, it's that idea. I want to point out somebody else's sin. I want to call judgment down on them. Well, then I'd be ready. I'd be better be ready to be condemned myself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, we have to recognize in the Christian life and in life in general, we never do the exact same thing as somebody else, Right? The, the words of my lie were slightly different than the words of your lie. But at the same time, we've done the same thing, haven't we? And so this is what Paul is pointing out here. We've all done the same kinds of sins. Yes, the details were different. The context was different. The words were different. The, the specific actions might have been different. But even going back to chapter 1, it's idolatry, isn't it, at its core? So we've all sinned. So as soon as I'm ready to point the finger at somebody else, I condemn myself also a sinner. So the Apostle Paul comes to verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. He actually uh, finds a point of agreement with his imaginary opponent here. We know, both of us know and understand that God is righteous. He judges according to the truth. So you think you can judge when you don't judge according to the truth. You just judge according to your perspective and you ignore the fact that you've sinned as well. But God judges according to the truth. He knows what's right. He sees all things. He's the one who's never sinned. God judges justly. So it's almost like Paul is wondering, how can you think this way? Oh, reader who judges others and does the same thing. So he's going to ask some rhetorical questions to point out kind of the absurdity of this. Notice verse 3. Do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think, do you really think, Paul's asking, that by pointing the finger at somebody else that you will somehow escape God's justice, his truth seeing of all things? Do you think that by, oh, oh, no, 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 it was him that somehow you won't be judged as well? We could go back to the garden, couldn't we, to prove this one wrong. Do you remember what Adam said to God when God confronted him there in the garden? Adam, where are you? What's happened? It was the woman you gave me. Adam's finger pointing was not only at Eve, but ultimately at God. This is what we do when we finger point, when we judge others, we condemn ourselves, and it does not stand before the righteous God. See, Paul says, you've done the same things. The second rhetorical question uh, comes in verse four. He says this, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? He asks the reader here, are you intentionally trying to hate God's mercy? Are you intentionally trying to reject his goodness? Do you not understand that the reason God has shown you mercy and goodness and patience is so that you will repent? So here's, I think, what happens in the mind of the self-righteous, our minds. We experience life and we just happen to notice that um, some good things happen to us. So for instance, right, we, it rains and the plants grow and there's sunshine and the seasons change and creation is beautiful and, you know, we, we've all had some kind of good thing happen in our lives, right? On top of that, Paul is preaching the gospel here, which is the greatest thing that happened to any of us. 
So there's this temptation with those good things to begin to kind of think to ourselves, you know, I kind of deserve this. This is probably happening to me because I'm a good person. We, we see the troubles that other people go through and we begin to think, well, they probably deserved it. Right? This is law-based thinking. You see, God's kindness, God's goodness in our lives is not meant to lead to pride where we say, well, I must, I must just deserve His goodness in my life. No, God's patience with us, the fact that He doesn't just wipe us off the face of the earth the moment we sin, God's benevolence in our lives is meant to soften our hearts and lead us to repentance. And when we turn to self-righteousness, well, I guess I do deserve God's kindness. When we turn to self-righteousness, we despise the goodness of God. We diminish the size of the gospel. Think about the imagery I showed you at the beginning, right? When, when God is higher in our view and our sin is lower in our view, the gospel is larger in our view. But if I begin to think that, you know what, I'm actually not that bad. I kind of deserve the goodness of God, right? What happens to our love of His mercy and kindness and grace in our lives? It shrinks, doesn't it? We despise His mercy when we see ourselves as somehow good and worthy of His kindness. And so these two rhetorical questions point out the absurdity of the judgmental person, the self-righteous one who, who thinks they're worthy of God's kindness. Instead, here's what they have coming in verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So there's this day coming when God's wrath will be poured out on sin, when we will see his righteous judgment and his patience today, the fact that I'm not experiencing his wrath for my sin right now does not mean that I'm somehow worthy of his forgiveness. It means that we have a merciful God. And by ignoring that mercy, this verse says that I'm actually storing up for myself more wrath on the day when his wrath is finally revealed. You see, there's a coming judgment. There's a day when everyone will stand before God and give account for our deeds, and he will punish evil, every evil deed. And if I'm ignoring God's mercy today, I'm storing up more wrath for myself on the day of judgment. This is Paul's logic here. Now, we need to remember something important. We're still in a section on law. This is pre-salvation. This is pre-gospel. So there's a truth, a beautiful truth, that comes into play here for the believer, the one who has accepted the gospel. And it is this. We will never, ever face the wrath of God. Never. That's what the gospel's all about. That's what Jesus saved us from, right? So again, this is talking about the person before salvation, before gospel. Okay, you want to ignore the gospel? You want to try to just live a righteous life? You want to do your best before the Lord? Let's see how that goes. This is kind of the the situation that we're in here. And he says, look, if you want to be hard-hearted and despise the mercy of God, despise his invite to salvation, then you'll just store up more wrath for yourself when you stand before him on that day. This is like the Pharisees when Jesus came, offering them divine righteousness to trust in him as Savior But they were so addicted to their own self-righteousness that they tried to even get self-righteousness from Jesus by mocking him and putting him down even to the cross. They would not receive the forgiveness that he offered them. That's hardness of heart. That's self-righteousness that is so hardened in my heart that I, I can't even see the beauty of the offer of the gospel. I despise the patience of God thinking that I'm not sick in the first place. This is what we do when we demonstrate self-righteousness. And friend, if you're a believer, know that you will not face the wrath of God ever. Jesus took it all for you. However, 
we can fall back into law-based thinking where we operate with a degree of self-righteousness as if life is about this exchange of honor and who's better and who's worse and we're putting people down and judging people to make ourselves feel better. It's anti-gospel and it, even as a believer, it despises the mercy of God which is intended to draw us to repentance. Now, praise God, we can't lose our standing before the Lord We will not face his wrath, but it's just that much more absurd to pursue self-righteousness and to judge one another, having been offered forgiveness and the righteousness of God in Christ by faith. John Burke, writing about being judgmental and judging others, is a a pastor, and he he shared the following story, which uh, will kind of make you smile. He decided to keep track of his own judgments about other people for a week, and this is what he discovered. Judging others is fun, he says. Judging others makes you feel good, and I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for his messy room or judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm being moody, but of course I have a good reason. Some of you may be thinking, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No, but there's correction that values with mercy, and there's correction that devalues with judgment. I watch the news and condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car and drive and find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And I throw in a little condemnation on our Department of Public Safety for good measure, too. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for. I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long, because look, people, it says 10 items or less, and I count one more than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? Judging is our favorite pastime, and if we're honest, but we're not, we're great at judging the world around us by standards we would highly resent being held to ourselves. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. As Matthew 7 points out, we spend our time wanting to remove the speck in our neighbor's eyes, or worse, maybe just pointing out and laughing at the speck in our neighbor's eyes, all the while ignoring the plank in our own eyes, as Jesus taught us. Instead, Jesus instructed us to first address the plank in our own eye before we even consider helping those around us. Self-righteousness is a symptom of our hard, unrepentant heart. And it's actually a double sin. Not only are we judging, which is a sin against the singular judge of the universe, only he gets to do that. Not only are we judging and sinning in that way, but we're also doing the same kind of thing in our lives as well, somewhere at the same time. So it reveals this double sin. Maybe a child disobeys her mother, and then the mother disobeys God by responding in anger. How could you disobey me like that? All the while disobeying her own sovereign God. A man looks down on a co-worker for his homosexual lifestyle, but then in the office lets his eyes linger where he shouldn't, lusting after women who are not his wife. Maybe we complain about people who complain Maybe we feel especially hurt when people betray us, not realizing that we've betrayed the Lord so many times over. Maybe we're frustrated by the lies of others, forgetting that we ourselves have deceived and lied many times. Maybe we get frustrated by the irresponsibility of others. How could they take my time? How could they show up late? How could they not be more responsible not realizing that we have failed the Lord over and over and over. Self-righteousness reveals that there's a hard heart inside of us. You see, blame shifting does not help us escape God's judgment. 
We won't, it won't stand when he sets his gaze upon me. And so sometimes we insert little statements that try to help us along the way. Well, I'm not perfect. Sure, I'm, I'm sure I didn't handle everything right. There was probably some sin in there somewhere, but they, and then we go on to explain how clearly their actions were far worse than whatever wrong thing I might have done in the process. This is another deceptive form of self-righteousness, isn't it? See, the sentence should really stop. Well, I'm sure I didn't handle it perfectly. Okay, let's dig into that. (laughs) Let's start there. Well, I probably sinned in the process, but do you understand what they did? Uh, 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 Let's back up. Let's see. Let's look for those planks in the eye. Let's humble ourselves and have a soft heart before the Lord because this is not a competition between humans here. It's about a holy God, sinful humanity, and the Savior who saved us from our hopeless condition. And so we must admit our sin. We must be soft-hearted and ready not only to admit that we've done wrong, not just in passing, but in all honesty, and then to turn from that sin. Say, because Jesus has saved me, I don't want this anymore. Not only will I confess it, I want to repent. You see, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Not just passing, oh yeah, I guess I shouldn't have done that. But oh, you know, I deserved to be crushed for what I've done against the Lord. And he's shown me his kindness and his mercy. Father, thank you for your goodness. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to put this sin out of my life. Help me. Would you? Would you hold me accountable? Would you, would you help pray for me so that I can be done with this and look more like Christ in my life? You see, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And so I encourage you, let God's kindness in life soften your heart and lead you to repentance to conquer any self-righteousness that may be present there. Like The Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, Jesus reminds us, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It's about the shortest summary of self-righteousness there is. And the tax collector then, who would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He had a right understanding of the holiness of God and his need for God's mercy. This is one of the reasons we can't escape God's righteous judgment because even when we try to point the finger to others, we reveal that we have hard hearts and we're self-righteous, which deserves God's wrath as well. (laughs) But there's another reason we can't escape the judgment of God and we come to that in the next verses. Number two, and I think they got the PowerPoint fixed. Thanks guys, appreciate it. Number two, God will judge our deeds with justice and impartiality. Sometimes we like to think that if we do enough good things or we get on God's good side or if, you know, I don't know, somehow I outweigh my, good de- or my bad deeds with good deeds that, you know, God will just kind of, well, okay, you did pretty well. But the fact of the matter is that God will judge our deeds with justice and impartiality. I have no claim before the Lord. I can't come to him and say, well, my dad was a pastor, actually, so I don't know if that gets me anything, but it won't stand. Well, don't you know where I'm from? Right? All these things that on a human level we might claim for status with one another doesn't stand before the Lord. He judges righteously and impartially and based on our deeds. So let's break this down. This section builds on verse 5 by describing the righteous judgment of God on that day of wrath. And I I want you to remember as we head into this, that this is still law. This is still pre-gospel, okay? So as if we hadn't gotten saved, this would be our condition, all right? Verse 6 says this, who will render to each one according to his deeds. The quotation of either Proverbs 24.12 or Psalm 62.12. In fact, this statement comes through in Scripture many different times uh, that our judgment will be based on our deeds. And I don't know if you realize this, but this is actually true for believers as well. We will be judged by our works. See, faith determines our destination. Excuse me. 
If we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, then our destination changes. We are forgiven, we're cleansed, we're offered God's righteousness. We'll go to heaven to be with him where believers will stand before Christ at what? The judgment seat of Christ. So the whole destination is different if we trust in Christ in this life. If we choose to reject Christ in this life, we have a different destination. We'll be judged at the great white throne judgment and everyone at that judgment is headed to the lake of fire for eternal torment but they're still judged by works and the works determine the severity of that judgment for eternity. So in both cases, the judgment we face is a judgment of works. The destination is decided by whether or not we trusted in the gospel, trusted in Jesus Christ as our savior. It's important to understand that. So here we're talking about the judgment of wrath, that if you're a believer, you won't be at this judgment, okay? This is what we're describing here in these verses where it's told he will render to each one according to his deeds. Verse seven, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now you read that at first and it's like, well, wait a second. Is, is God saying that if we have this patient continuance in doing good works that we can earn eternal life? Remember which judgment we're at. We're at this judgment. And we read about in the book of Revelation that the books are opened to see if anyone's name is written in the book of life, and then their works are judged. And the Apostle Paul is almost giving a hypothetical situation here. Remember, this is all law. This is pre-gospel, pre-salvation. We're leading up to the gospel. So, okay, sure. Let's say somebody showed up on the judgment day, and they had done everything right in the law, or as the text says, by patient continuance. It's actually one word that means persistence or perseverance. The idea is that they did everything good in the law, persistently, right? Always. Okay, so Paul's almost saying, you want to argue that the law-based living is a good way to do things? Let's say somebody shows up on judgment day and they claim they've done everything right. Sure, maybe God would grant them eternal life. (laughs) That's one category. Then you have another category mentioned in verse 8. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and uh, will come indignation and wrath. So there's our other option. So on that judgment day, there'll be two options. Either by patient continuance, you kept every good work of the law, or you broke the law. Those are our two categories. Those are the two options for judgment day, right? Now, Paul is doing something. He's not saying that we can earn salvation by works. He's actually making it obvious that we can't earn salvation by works. Remember, there's just two categories here. Either you've upheld the law perfectly by this patient continuance, or you've broken the law somewhere. Okay, which category do you fall into, reader? Right? Paul could ask that question next. All right, so those are your options. You can either earn eternal life by doing everything right, or you can have done any little thing wrong, and you've earned yourself God's wrath and indignation. So, how's judgment day going for you? Right. Well, it becomes pretty obvious. No one can stand before the Lord in that case. We've all broken the law. So he goes on in verse 9 and 10, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Have I done anything evil? Yep. Okay, so I know which category I'm in. I'm the one who failed, who broke. I'm the lawbreaker, not the law keeper. And you'll also notice this. There are two categories. The, the judgment is not based on like this scale of weight, Okay, so it's not, he's not taking into account how many good works did you do? Okay, well, I guess that outweighs the one time you broke the law, so we'll put you in this category. No, 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 it's very simply. You either kept the whole law or you didn't. If you broke the law, even in one place, as James tells us, you're guilty of being a lawbreaker. And so it becomes very clear here 
which category you're in. And he goes on to explain that your heritage doesn't matter at all. He says at the end of verse nine, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Verses nine and 10 are intended to point out that your, your background, your heritage doesn't make a difference here. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. The judgment is all the same. God judges impartially and it's based on your deeds. Sure, if you did everything right, every single time for your whole life, sure, have eternal life. Has anybody fallen into that category? And silence across the room, right? Nope. Okay, so we're all in the lawbreaker category. Let's see why it is further that we can't escape the judgment of God. There's no partiality with God. We can't earn any favors. We can't get on his uh, good side by just doing certain things right. This puts us in deep, deep trouble. Twice he mentions to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and I think it's a a way that Paul's trying to gently humble the Jews. Remember earlier in uh, 1, 16 and 17, he had said that salvation, the gospel had come to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, The Jews did have the special privilege of receiving God's revelation, his his, uh, scriptures, right? And so they heard about these things first, but in the same breath, they have to admit, well, if we knew about these things first, then won't we be judged first because we knew about them first and broke them first? (laughs) So again, he's just wiping the table clean saying everybody stands before a holy God as unrighteous. God will judge our deeds with justice and impartiality. You know, 60% of people think they're in the top 10% of people. Do the math on that real quick. When researchers ask husbands and wives what percentage of the housework they do, the wives say, are you kidding? I do almost everything, at least 90%. And the husband says, I do a lot, about 40%. Hmm. Although the specific numbers differ from couple to couple, the total always exceeds 100% by a significant margin. It's tempting to conclude that one spouse is lying, but it's more likely that each is remembering in a way that enhances his or her own contribution, right? We tend to have an inflated view of ourselves. One time, Carrie and I were visiting a restaurant in downtown Des Moines, and uh, we had parked our vehicle, street parking, and I'd uh, put, you know, kind of estimated how long we would be in the restaurant and, and put in the right amount. And uh, went into the restaurant and had a good time and uh, just kind of were enjoying ourselves. And uh, at some point while we were in the restaurant, it occurred to me, ooh, the parking meter, I think I might have underestimated. So I checked my clock. Sure enough, it, it had just passed. All right, I better run out to the car and get this taken care of. So I'm jogging over to our vehicle and there's the parking meter attendant at the car, you know, riding the ticket. And so I run up to her and I say, I'm right here, I'm right here, I'm so sorry. I I was trying to watch and I just lost track of the time. I'm about to put another quarter in and we'll be fine. Uh, She's like, oh, okay, great, thank you. She finishes riding the ticket and hands it to me. (laughs) But, 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 But come on, I'm right here, you know, I mean, Give me something, right? I ran over to the car. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to take care of it. Sorry, ticket's yours. You, your court date's listed there and yada, 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 whatever. Or you can pay the fee and, you know, et cetera. <sighs> okay. That was justice without impartiality. Was she right? She was. The car was parked there past the end of the time, wasn't it? She was Right. And I wanted some kind of mercy. Oh, come on, I ran over and, you know, tried to be nice to her and all this stuff. Nothing worked. Impartiality, here's your ticket. Okay, so we paid the fee and move on with life, right? See, when we work with the Lord, sometimes we think that by our heritage or who we are or something really neat inside of ourselves or the way our family was or our social status or our successes in this life or I've earned these awards or... Lord, don't you see what I've done for you that somehow all those things will add up to just kind of get God to lean our way a little bit. Okay, I'll let a lot of this stuff go. Fine, you're in. No. See, God judges righteously with impartiality. And so we have to be honest about our deeds before him and admit that I've done wrong. 
The car was parked there and it wasn't paid for. Who cares how short the time was, right? And so we all are unrighteous before the impartial justice of our God. This is bad news. And Paul's two categories make it really clear. There's there's no fudging here. God is clear. If I've done evil, I'm in the category that deserves wrath and indignation and judgment. He judges according to the truth. And I love this about God. He sees everything clearly. There's no confusion. We're always suffering ourselves with some kind of blindness, especially when we look look at ourselves. But God sees everything as it is. And the question that matters from this second section is this. What group do I deserve to be in? What group am I in? Have I kept the law perfectly? Have I done everything good? Have all my actions been good? Or have I ever, in any regard, any small way, done something wrong? And if so, God will render to me according to my works, which means I'm an evildoer. I'm a lawbreaker, which means I will face God's wrath. Friend, as bad as that news is, we all have to reckon with that. It's true for every human being. We are condemned before a holy God. God will judge with righteousness. Now, this final section leaves us wondering, well, see, what about, what about the Jews? They, they received the law. They're God's special people. Won't they receive some extra favor? And so this idea of God's judgment with impartiality is expanded one level further to show, no, this is not about outward law keeping. It's actually about the heart. So let's say, even after point two, even after the second section, I could kind of say, well, actually, as I think back, I think most of my works are good. And now Paul says, okay, let's look at your heart. Let's see where your thoughts and motives were, because those will be judged too. And it helps us see that number three today, God's righteous judgment assesses even the secrets of the heart. God's righteous judgment assesses even the secrets of the heart, and so it becomes more obvious that none of us will escape his righteous judgment. None of us can escape his righteous judgment. He assesses even our hearts. So in verse 12, he mentions that there, there are, you could look at it as two groups, Jews and Gentiles, those who sinned without the law, but notice his conclusion, they will perish without the law. Oh, what about those who had the law? Well, as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Okay, so verse 12 is just sort of this clear summary, like, well, what what if they had the law? Or what if they didn't have the law? And Paul's just really clear. He's like, well, either way, if they didn't have the law, they'll perish without the law because they still sinned against God. If they had the law, they'll perish under the law because they sinned against God. So what's the result for all of us, whether we had the law or not, perish, death? Verse 13. For it's not the hearers of the law that are just in the sight of God, but doers of the law will be justified. This is continuing this argument over here where he says, sure, you want to claim your good works? Okay, if you're a perfect doer of the law, then sure, have some righteousness. (laughs) But nobody is. Nobody is. We've all failed. And just having the law or just hearing the law doesn't do anything for us, does it? It's our deeds Then the Apostle Paul in verses 14 and 15 talks about those who did not have the law. Well, can they be excused because they didn't know better? He says this, the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. So he's saying that God created us in such a way that in our hearts, we call it our conscience, we have a sense of what is right and wrong. Now, we already talked in chapter one about how God's general revelation, God's creation is enough for us to know that I'm accountable to the creator. He needs to be worshiped and I need to pursue more information about him. So it starts there. But in verse 15, you're going to notice he he digs into the heart and says, look, our conscience even bears testimony against us. All, All humans, even before salvation, have a conscience. Now, we can Uh, adjust it, we can twist it, we can do all these things, but deep down, 
were built with an ability to generally morally know what is right and wrong, at least in the large things. He says in verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So every secret will be revealed, and even those who did not have the law had a conscience, the ability to know that, you know what? I can just tell that it's not right for me to take the life of this other human being. My heart knows that it's wrong. There's a conscience there, even before salvation. And to go against that conscience ends up testifying against us on judgment day that we knew better and we still did what was wrong. We still did what was wrong. And so he's pointing out how even the secrets of our hearts will be revealed, even our conscience will speak against us. Every human knows what is right and wrong in their hearts and their conscience will bear witness and their thoughts will either accuse them or excuse them. This is an interesting statement there at the end of verse 14. We like to use our thoughts to do this. This is actually another symptom of self-righteousness. When our conscience points out that something's wrong, it bears witness against us, right? You get that sense of, of guilty feelings there. Oh, I know that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. What do we do with our thoughts? Sometimes we accuse ourselves, which is different than repenting. This is actually a form of self-righteousness where we put ourselves down, we punish ourselves, hoping that that will somehow relieve whatever punishment God might have for our sin. And so we say things like, oh, I'm just such a horrible person. In fact, sometimes we even say these things out loud with this kind of hidden hope that somebody else will correct me, right? Oh, I'm the worst person in the world. No, no, you're not the worst person in the world. Oh, thank you. Wow, that's so nice of you to say that to me. Well, you see what we're doing there. By intentionally accusing myself, I'm trying to punish myself. That's a form of self-righteousness, a very deceptive form of it. The other one's more common, excusing ourselves. So my conscience bothers me. Oh, yeah, I should have done that. I knew that was wrong. But, you know, I don't do it very often. It was, you know, just a one-time thing. Really, I've been doing so well over the last few weeks, I earned it. Um, I, I won't struggle with this again. Uh, no, but it didn't really hurt anybody, right? What, what are we doing? We're justifying, self-justifying. That's self-righteousness. And so he brings those ideas up again, even as he says, we ignore our consciences and try to justify ourselves, try to make ourselves righteous, but it won't stand when, verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Everything will be revealed. It will all be laid bare before God. Everything in our hearts, every thought, every motive, every whim, every fantasy, every lust, every hateful word that we thought every time we were angry with somebody in our hearts and, oh, well, at least it didn't come out. No, it's in there and God saw it. He knows it. So after all that he said in chapter two so far, if there's any inkling that maybe I can squeak by God's righteous judgment, now we're all toast. Because every little thing in my mind and heart, the Lord knows, and it will be revealed. Paul says he will judge by Jesus Christ. God has given authority to his son to do the judging. And I think it's significant that the one who paid for sins judges all sins. He also says it's according to his gospel. You see, Paul is introducing the gospel message here that we have no righteousness apart from the work of Christ, that we're hopeless without him. And so, again, there's this little gospel hope there in verse 16. There's good news coming but we're still in the bad news. You see, we love to hide things. We like to think we're good at it too. 
Thursday of this week, we were working on the, uh, the video that you hopefully will see in a little while here about our uh, fundraising work and the building project and so forth. We made that uh, Thursday in my office. And uh, in the process of setting up the video camera, uh, we were trying to find the best place for it. And so we cleared some shelves on my bookshelf and I used some clamps to attach a piece of wood that came out from the shelf so there was more room to put the video camera and so forth. And so you can imagine, you know, the, the wood colored bookshelves with a wood plant kind of coming out of it like this. You may begin to see where this is headed. So I'm working around my office, getting things set up, you know, the microphone and the sound levels and so forth. And at one point, I, I whip around to get something off my desk and I turn like this and I walk straight into that shelf sticking out of my bookshelf. It's, the, it's wood colored. It just kind of blended in. That's my excuse. Uh, so I walk right into it and it just, it hits me right here, just right on the bridge of my nose. Ugh, that woke me up. Now, remember, I'm getting ready to record a video. It's Thursday, so Sunday's coming. You're all looking at my nose right now, aren't you? <laughs> it's Thursday, so Sunday's coming. And so I immediately walk over to Carrie, and I was like, can you see? Is there a cut? Like, what? You know, I'm not even worried about what happened to me. It's just like, can you see what happened on my nose? Is it obvious? You know, and I'm beginning to think, like, how do I cover this up, right? Uh, you know, I don't know how makeup works, but could that cover something like this? Or, you know, how do I make it look like I'm not a fool who just walked into a shelf? Right? Why? Why did my thoughts go there first before even the injury and all of that stuff? Because we like to hide. I don't want you to think I'm a fool. Right? I don't want you to think I walked into a shelf in my office. Well, now you know. Now, praise God, it wasn't that bad, and you know, maybe you'll shake my hand after the service and, oh, yeah, I see a little bit there, yeah, right here on the nose. And didn't break anything. It's all good. But we like to hide, don't we? We like to hide. We don't want people to know the truth about our hearts. But friend, God knows everything. There's no hiding from him. He knows every detail, everything you've ever said or thought or done, and it's unrighteousness. And we all face his wrath on judgment day because of it. And he's good to treat us that way because evil must be punished. It's part of his love and his good and his kindness to punish our sins. But he shows his goodness and his mercy in another way as well. Not only does his goodness punish evil, but his goodness also has waited to punish evil. In verse 4, we read about it, remember? Do you despise the riches of his goodness? Not knowing that the kindness of God is to lead you to repentance? 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us that God is not slack concerning his promise, but is patient, wanting all to come to repentance, it says. You see, God, maybe he's brought you here this morning not only to know that you are condemned under his wrath, but also so that you can understand his goodness has provided a way of salvation for you. Knowing the depths of our unrighteousness, just listen to the beauty of the gospel one more time. God in his kindness sent us a way to be made righteous. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, never sinned. So he's the man who actually did good all the time. He's in a category of his own. <laughs> he's the one who is legitimately righteous. But not just righteous as a man, making him the perfect sacrifice, but also possessing the eternal, divine righteousness of God. Think of it. How much righteousness does God have? It's unlimited. He is righteous. So Jesus lived this perfect life as the God-man. But then the Pharisees in their self-righteousness began to try to put him down. They didn't need a savior. Look at all the things they'd done. So they mock him and beat him and put him on the cross. And by their very self-righteousness and ours as well, Jesus took the sins of the world on his own shoulders, including our judgmentalism and self-righteousness. He died on that cross bearing the sins of the world. And I want you to understand something specific about that. When Jesus did that, it says that he died in your place and in my place and that he paid for our sins in full 
So just a moment ago when I told you that God knows everything in your heart, every thought, every motive, every deed, every action, and that he will judge without impartiality, do you understand that God knew all of those things even before you did them and that Jesus paid for them on the cross? So that blame shifting, that pretending your sin was not there, that hypocritical spirit, that it, you name it, God knew about it and Jesus paid for it. Two things happen through that act of Christ on the cross. God remains righteous because a holy God has still punished my sin just as it deserved to be punished. He displayed his righteousness in that way and Jesus took it for me. But he did something else. He provided a way for me to know his mercy. See, Jesus died for my sins he experienced the, the things we read in this passage, the indignation, the wrath, the tribulation, the anguish for my sins. And then he rose again from the grave, making it clear and obvious that he had paid for that sin in full and had conquered my sin and death and was God's provision for salvation. And then God offers me righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to come to that gospel in Romans chapter 3, where we're told that two things happen when I trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. The sin on my account, the, the filthy things that I've done and thought and wanted are all washed away from my account, accounted to Jesus Christ on the cross. And in their place, God puts the righteousness of Jesus Christ, divine, infinite righteousness, the righteousness of God, we're told, in its place. And then my whole destination changes. Now I'm not standing over here at the law judgment, right? But because of faith in Christ, I've been made a child of God. My sins have been washed away. God sees me in the righteousness of his son and I will never face God's wrath because Jesus faced it for me. And so I'll be at the judgment for God's children. When we stand before Jesus Christ and he looks at my works and says, ah, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, these things were worthless, they'll burn up, but these will be rewards as you enter into heaven. This is what God has done in the gospel. And he offers it to us not by works. If we want works, then that's what this judgment's for. It is not by works. That's the whole point. The gospel displays the grace of God that not by working, but by believing, I can have my sins washed away and be forgiven and given the righteousness of God. So friend, stop working. It's not on you. Jesus paid it all. Turn to him in faith today. Have your sins washed away and be granted by God the very righteousness of Christ by faith. Just marvel at the fact that you cannot earn it. An impartial God has chosen to put his wrath on his son and to treat you with kindness by faith as a display of his grace and mercy and forbearance. So don't harden your heart. Let the kindness of God lead you to repentance. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ today. Believer, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ today, the, the Christian life is not the law-based life. It's the grace-motivated life. Remember, we're not at this judgment anymore. God has moved us to the condition of being his child, dressed in the righteousness of Christ. So I don't have to do anything to try to earn favor with God. In fact, to try to do so sort of despises his mercy, doesn't it? I have his favor uh, and, and not just the favor of a, of a pretty good guy, but the favor of his son, Jesus Christ, infinite righteousness. And in response to that, we just say, okay, Lord, thank you. I can't, I can't even imagine. In response to your grace, I, I want to live for you. I want to be done with my sin. And uh, there's no need to hide it because I know my standing. Well, what's the point of self-righteousness, of covering my sin or pretending I'm better than I am? Oh, that's silly. It despises the gospel. So get it out there. Oh, here it is, Lord. Here's what I've done and I don't want to do it anymore because I know Jesus already paid for it. So I want to have it out of my life and let me lean on the family you've provided for accountability and help because I, I don't want this sin anymore. I want to look more like Jesus. Jesus. 
because of what he did for me. And it's not works in my own strength. It's, it's what God compels in me by his spirit as my view of the gospel grows and grows. And it's just, oh, Father, I'll do anything for you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. That's the Christian life. It's gospel-fueled love for God that hates sin and loves the Savior. So friend, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe needing to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and find his righteousness by faith or to begin to live for him in response to what he's done for you. But either way, self-righteousness is not the way. Hardness of heart is not the way. Soften your heart to the Lord today because he judges rightly and has offered you his mercy in his son. Father, we thank you for this rich passage of scripture. Soften our hearts as we look at the gospels we remember how kind you've been to us. Keep us from the temptation of self-righteousness. May we be quick to confess our sins to one another, to seek help from one another, to walk by faith and not by sight, to please you because of what you've done for us. We need your help. and We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.